a song of ascents of David. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded his blessing, life forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Um, if you don't know me, my name is Jonathan. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here. Um, just apologies for my uh, deep voice this morning. I've had a little bit of a cold this week. Thought I'd be over it, but it's kind of lingering around in my head. So apologies if anything leaks out of my face. <laughs> it might, but we'll see. Uh, but we're all family, right? Um, if you haven't yet, open your Bibles to Psalm 133. Um, this morning we're wrapping up this series in the Psalms of Ascent. Um, I don't know about you, but I'm always a little bit like sad when we finish uh, a series here. Um, we've been in this specific chunk of Scripture for two months now, and hopefully by now you've, uh, you've begun to see how it hopefully begins to shape you um, as, we, as we read and kind of unravel these, these old poems, um, as you have these discussions um, of how the, the significance, the practicalities, the wonders of how God's work begins to, to, to shape our lives. Um, uh, hopefully we begin to understand what this, this journey closer to God, that's kind of been the whole point of, this, of these songs, is they're, they're, they, they take you on a journey from a long way away from the presence of God closer to Him. Um, hopefully you begin to see how it begins to, to shape that journey, what that journey is supposed to look like how we're meant to uh, be in community with his people rather than in isolation. How, it shows how we're meant to walk in trials and suffering. Um, shows how we were to reorder our lives, to, to walk in his ways rather than our ways. Um, see how we, we fix our eyes on him rather than us and our own circumstances. Like the, the hand on the eyes on the hand of the master, just waiting for mercy in that way. There's been so many lessons um, that, we've, that we've learned from here. Um, hopefully you see how even in such short and ancient poems as these, uh, the Word of God is such a, a deep and refreshing well to drink from. Um, I think the Psalms are amazing. Um, we'll be back. Next week we're going to start our series in uh, the Sermon on the Mount which I've been waiting to do for quite a while. Um, but uh, we're finishing in Psalm 133, uh, and it's a song that has that title, When Brothers Dwell in Unity. Um, and we'll use that phrase, but I think you can safely say when brothers and sisters dwell in unity, because he's not just talking about how the males dwell in unity here. He's, he's talking, it's just a celebration of family, of, of community unity. Um, and we've reminded you every week that uh, these psalms, these 15 Poems from Psalm uh, 120 and 134 are pilgrim songs that the people of Israel w- would sing these as they made this journey uh, towards Jerusalem. Um, they, they'd ascend to Mount Zion where uh, the holy city is for these annual holy festivals that the Lord commanded them to gather together for. They're gathering uh, in the place where the temple is. This is where the spirit of, of the Lord made his, his presence uh, at the time. And even through these songs, there's almost like a little bit of a, a journey narrative as well. And, and you can picture them here, these visitors to Zion, and they're nearing the end of their holiday. And they're about to return back to their homes, and they're singing this hymn of joy because they've seen and they've experienced such union between the tribes, the various tribes that have gathered there together. So if you have your Bibles open, uh, flick back a page or whatever it is to Psalm 122, um, where in Psalm 122, you see the pilgrim actually arrives to the city, and, and, and you see how he's expressing this gladness, this excitement to, to be gathering with the people of God in, in the house of the Lord. Um, he, in verse 3 of 122, he talks about Jerusalem being the city that's bound firmly together. Um, he talks about the tribes, these, these diverse various tribes of the Lord gathering together in this one place uh, to give thanks uh, to the name of the Lord. Um, he, he, he prays for the peace of Jerusalem, that, the, that they would be united in this way. Um, he prays for his brothers and his companions' sake. He says in verse 8, I will, be, uh, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. 
Um, and then you, you can imagine how in Psalm 133, and near the end of, of, of the journey, uh, they're singing this song of joy because they've experienced that peace and that unity that they prayed for at the beginning. Uh, the authorship of this one's attributed to David. Uh, we don't know exactly when he wrote it. Uh, some scholars think he wrote it after finally becoming king of a unified uh, nation of Israel. Um, we're not sure exactly the scenario, but if there's one thing you know about David, it's that David knew a lot about disunity. Um, so just reflect back on his story, where at the beginning of his story, um, he, he, with the help of God, miraculously uh, defeats the, the giant, this uncircumcised Philistine, Goliath. Um, but you see, when you read that story, you see that that victory didn't bring David the experience of unity. Rather, he experienced this immense jealousy from King Saul. Um, so you remember what the women sang. They sang, Saul has slain his thousands, but David has tens of thousands. So this made Saul extremely jealous of David. And it brought about uh, quite a sad period where David saw firsthand how, how envy and jealousy can not only rip a, apart a court, but a family. And David has to roam in the wilderness, fleeing from Saul because he wanted to kill David. And then David's part of this long civil war in Israel. So David knew the effects and the horrors of disunity within people. And then if you keep reading in 2 Samuel chapter 5, when God finally gathers the nation of Israel into a unified people, and he makes David their king, and in, in 2 Samuel 5, verse 12, it uh, says that David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of, of, uh, of his people Israel. So you see that David knew fully that it was, it was the Lord who had accomplished this unity. Uh, so no human being could have brought this, this, this country together at the time. And is perhaps in, in that context that David is thinking and he's, he's writing, he's singing about this blessing of unity because he knew so much about dissension, about, about uh, disunity. He knew about the envy and the jealousy that, that rips families and nations apart, so much so that he could greatly appreciate the blessing of unity and of peace. Um, before we, we dig in, I want to ask you the question, does unity, can you use that word to describe the various parts of your life? Um, is unity a word that you can use to describe your family life? Uh, is unity a word that, that can be described, uh, can it describe your, your church uh, experience? And um, you could expand that a bit larger and say, uh, is unity a word that can be, uh, can describe the, the church in our country? Uh, let's pray before we, we really dig in. Uh, Father, we thank you for uh, giving us your word. Uh, these, these ancient songs that, that you breathed out so long ago um, for us. Um, just so we can, we can understand who you are, Lord, and to see you more clearly. We thank you for all you've done uh, for us, uh, Father, through, through the work of Jesus uh, Spirit, we'd ask that you would um, do what only you can do right now, Lord, that you would use this, this weak, sick man to, uh, to illuminate your, your scriptures, Lord, to, to, uh, to let us see you uh, more clearly, Jesus. This is all about your glory and not about ours at all. Um, we pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Um, I, had a, I had a teacher in school um, who would in his lectures would use this phrase, now it's important for you to understand. He had this funny voice. Um, and he would say this phrase periodically. And, and after a while, everyone understood this phrase as essentially code word for, hey, pay attention to what I'm about to say because it's really important. What I'm about to say, write it down because it's going to be on the test. You're going to be held accountable for what I'm about to say. And in the end, it made the tests easier uh, because anytime you heard him say, now it's important for you to understand, um, your ears pricked up a bit and you started to pay attention uh, to what he was saying. 
And, and that's something about uh, what this word behold means at the beginning of, uh, of verse 1. Um, it means pay careful attention to what's to follow. It's very important. And, and so the psalm begins, behold, hey, prick, prick your ears up. This is really important. Um, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Uh, notice this is um, the, the only song that, that begins uh, with behold in this collection. Um, it's, it's almost as if uh, the Lord is saying, hey, we're nearing the end of this, and, and I want you to pay careful attention to this one. If, if you're going to capture and put into practice any of these lessons, let it be this one. And the psalmist says, behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. And I want to note three things before we move on. Uh, firstly, when, when you become a Christian, when, whether we like it or not, the moment that you profess faith in, in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, at that same time, you become a member of the Christian church. Um, and as Sue pointed out, we, we do believe uh, that in the New Testament you see um, uh, reasons for entering into covenant membership with, with your local church. Uh, but I'm talking about uh, this, this bigger uh, family of God, that when you become a Christian, that you automatically become a member of God's family. Uh, so remember what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. He says, so then, he's talking about th- this being brought from death to life, um, by the blood of Christ on the cross. He says, so then, because of that, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. He's saying, when you become a Christian, you become a child of God, that he is your father now, uh, that you're one of these brothers and sisters that's being called to dwell in unity. Uh, Eugene Peterson points out that, that because of, of, of that, the question isn't, am I going to be part of this, this community of faith? But rather, how am I going to live in this community of faith? Because Scripture knows nothing of solitary Christianity. Um, the, the, a, a community is something that you've been brought into by the work of Christ. The community is essential, and, and unity in that community is the goal. So um, if you're a Christian, you're, you're one of these brothers and sisters that's being called to dwell in unity. The second thing uh, I want you to note is, is that if living in community is, is necessary and it's desirable, we should also say that it's, it's also enormously difficult. Um, so we see that, that, that this family unity, this sibling unity, is not the norm in our world. Um, so uh, um, I, I know that some of you have experienced family unity and, and you're blessed because of that. But trust me when I say that, that family, sibling, unity is not the norm. Um, so just look around the world. Look at various people's families. Um, I, I have people in my extended family who haven't seen or, or talked to each other or wanted to talk to each other in years. And, and, and I know that a lot of you have that same story. And we even see this all throughout the Bible. So the first story of brothers living together is a story of Cain and Abel. And trust me when I say that that story didn't end well in unity. It ended in murder. <laughs> um, you keep reading in the story of Joseph and his brothers. His brothers envied him so much that they sold him into slavery. And um, uh, Miriam and Aaron uh, fought with their brother Moses. Um, David and his brothers experienced disunity. And um, even when you get into John chapter 7, we see there's even conflict between Jesus and his brothers because his brothers didn't believe who he said he was. You see, that the unity with siblings doesn't just happen naturally when we're left to our own devices. Um, finally, uh, the third thing I want to note is it's important to understand that, that not all unity is good. Uh, so go read the story of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11 sometime. Um, don't be tempted to think that the story of Babel is just a story uh, to explain why we have different languages in the world. Um, rather, it's a story where humans attempt to regain God-like unity by, by coming together and, and joining this common project uh, of building this tower to reach the heavens. 
And God looks down at this attempt at unity, and he judges it as idolatrous, and he, he shuts it down, and he sends the people scattering, because it wasn't a, a good kind of unity that they were pursuing. And, and ever since, humans have been attempting and failing over and over again to, to achieve a human-centered form of unity. And so just study our world's history, you see this cycle of, of people rising up, of governments rising up, sometimes decent ones and sometimes quite barbaric ones, but they all end up crumbling because they're seeking the wrong kind of unity. We see that not all unity is good. In fact, some unity can be wicked. Um, in his book, Journey to Joy, Josh Moody points out the difference between unity and uniformity. So uniformity is this external, rigid, uh, sometimes even forced agreement, which is very different from genuine unity which he says is a oneness of mind and heart around the truth. That, that's our definition we're going to use today, that, that unity is a oneness of mind and heart around the truth. And, and those last three words, around the truth, are very important because what you even see within, within the church is you see churches attempting to gain unity but at the expense of the truth. This, this oneness of heart, but you see the church has become soft on the truth or soft on the authority of, of, of God's word, all an attempt to gain unity. Uh, but remember what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. He calls the church to, to do what? To speak the truth in love. And he says that the point of speaking the truth in love is that so we can grow up into true unity. It's, it's a oneness of mind and heart around the truth, speaking the truth in love that allows us to, to grow into true unity. And, and, and the sort of unity that the, the church wants that's described in the New Testament is that kind that's, that's centered around the truth of the gospel. So, so if unity is, is what you are being called to, but we also notice that unity is enormously difficult and that not all unity is good, well then how do we do it correctly? And, and I think the psalmist here is, he answers that question in this psalm under these three headings, which I'm stealing from Moody as well. Um, what you see in Psalm 133 is, is the pleasure of unity in verse 1. Um, you see the, the origin of unity in verses 2 and 3, and then the blessing of unity at the end of verse 3. So we're going to look at the pleasure of unity, the origin of unity, and the blessing of unity. So first, let's look at the, the pleasure of unity. Verse 1 says, Behold, pay attention how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. And the, the Hebrew words for good and pleasant here, um, I found it really interesting that uh, good is tob and pleasant is naim. And remarkably, they nearly mean the same thing. So the, the root word for pleasant, for naim, is, is a verb and it means to be pleasing delightful or lovely. The root word for good, for tob, is also a verb, and it, it means to be pleasing or, or good. And, and, and that word, it, it's one of the first words that's, that's used repeatedly in the Bible. Back in Genesis 1, you all know this phrase, where during the creation story, God would create a new part of the universe, and, and he would step back and he would look at it, and, it would, and, and, it, and that phrase was, was uh, repeated which is, and, and God saw that it was good. He saw that it was tob, that it was pleasing to him. And, and six times he affirms particular aspects of his creation are good. And, but then you get to the sixth day where he creates man in his image, creates male and female, and, and he states that, that it, it wasn't until after he created them that he stepped back and he said that everything he made is now very good. It's, it's very tobe. It's, it's abundantly pleasing to him. And, and what's interesting is, is the first time God says something is not good is in Genesis chapter 2, verse 16. And Genesis chapter 2, it kind of zooms back and it, it, it reflects back into uh, the creation of, 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 of humanity, of man and woman. Uh, and what you see in Genesis 2 is that God creates Eden, he creates this garden, and then he creates Adam, uh, and he puts him in the garden to work. But then in verse 16, he says, then the Lord God said, it is not good 
that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So this is the first time he says, it's not Tob, it's not pleasing, not good that, that man is alone, that he's, he's in solitary. So then you have this, this parading of the animals before him, and, and Adam names all the animals, but he also sees that none of these things are, are a fit helper for him, and a fit companion. But then God creates Eve from Adam's rib, and he brings her before him, and, and Adam says, this at last is, is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she's taken out of man. And then in verse 24 says, Therefore man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one. They, they shall be in union. They're, they're, they will be unified. And then God looks and he says, Everything is, is very good. It's very pleasing. Because we're not meant to be alone. We're meant to be in community. Behold, how good and pleasant, how pleasing it is when brothers and sisters dwell in unity. Uh, these words are, are showing us that, that the goodness of unity being described in Psalm 133 isn't just a theoretical goodness, but a goodness that is experientially pleasurable. Let me say that again. The goodness of unity being described here isn't just a theoretical goodness, it's, a, it's an experiential goodness. Uh, it's experientially pleasurable. There's pleasure in unity. Let me ask you this question. I've asked a good few people this question this week. What comes to your mind when you hear the word pleasure? Um, is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Um, it can be either in our culture. Um, I, I, I did a bunch of nerdy stuff this week, and uh, Webster's Dictionary gives these uh, definitions that are on the screen. Uh, defines pleasure as, a, as desire, as a state of gratification, sensual gratification, frivolous amusement. Um, it, it can either be a transitive or an intransitive verb, which means it can either mean to, to take pleasure or to give pleasure. Collins Dictionary defines it as the activity of enjoying yourself. And a lot of times, pleasure can have sexual connotations, can't it? And some people might, might have like a, a kind of a negative view of pleasure. It's something that's, that can be kind of bad in, in a way. And, but a lot of us were, were taught that, that, that we need to be very cautious with pleasure. It, it's something that can be very dangerous. And I, when thinking about this, I thought back to, uh, anybody seen like uh, Pinocchio, the, the, old, the old cartoon? Um, where Pinocchio was tempted by these two sly characters to go to Pleasure Island. It's Pleasure Island there. Um, and Pleasure Island is a place where, where the coachman it, it takes all the bad boys from the various uh, villages and towns, and it's a place where the boys can do whatever that pleases them. Uh, and you see them smoking and drinking and fighting and wrecking the place. It's a very weird scene in a children's uh, cartoon. But you can do whatever pleases you. There, there's no teachers. There's no uh, police. There's no parents on Pleasure Island to stop you from doing whatever naughty thing you wanted to do. However, unknown to the boys, Pleasure Island was, in truth, it's actually a trap. Where So the, when the boys had had enough of being naughty, they would turn into donkeys after making jackasses of themselves. So this picture of Pleasure Island is, is, is pleasure as a place that's like this illegal island that you go to and it's going to get you into a bad and scary situation. Uh, some of you will have very positive uh, understandings of pleasure. People said finding gratification in, in, God, in God's good gifts. Um, some people said uh, just being in nature, going camping, playing football with mates. Um, going on a motorcycle ride, a nice glass of wine by the fire. But you see how there's so many different interpretations of what pleasure is? And so for us, we're wanting to make sure that, that we understand pleasure here, not through our own cultural lens, but to understand it through a biblical lens. Um, one of the other definitions that Webster's gives, and I think it's the best one, is that pleasure is a source of delight or joy. Pleasure as a source of delight or joy. And, and that should send this a little alarm off in your theological minds. 
Because remember what we covered, uh, we covered joy during Advent, and we learned that your existence, your existence, your creation, and a search for joy is intrinsically wrapped up together. So Genesis 1 tells us that, that God created man in his image. And one of the things that means is that we were created to experience what God experiences. And the thing that he's always experienced was himself, the, the glory of himself, the majesty of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit eternally in community. And we are meant to, to enter into that as well, to, to delight in that, to, to take joy in that, to find our satisfaction in that, that, that in him is where true and lasting pleasure is found. You see, your creation is an invitation to uh, experience and to delight in the eternal, eternal glory of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Let me say that again. Your creation is an invitation to experience and delight in the eternal glory of the triune God. You see, world, a worldly understanding of, of pleasure is, is very often individualistic, but a biblical understanding of pleasure is always communal. It, it's something that you're invited into. It's something that you find outside of yourself. And, and the psalmist in Psalm 133 is saying that that good and lasting pleasure that's found in God is also found when brothers and sisters dwell in unity. That, that there's pleasure in unity. Secondly, let's look at the origin of unity. Behold, it's good and pleasant to dwell in unity, um, but, but what kind of unity is this exactly? Uh, because we, we've, we've already said that not all unity is good, so it's important for us to understand what this kind of unity that's being described here in the psalm is, um, the, the kind that is good and, and pleasant. Verse 2 says, well, it's like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. And before we get into the imagery of those two similes, um, I want to point out that, that for a song of ascent, there's a lot of descending here happening, uh, isn't there? So you have these, these three descending refrains, like oil running down on the beard, running down on the collar, like dew which falls, is descend, descend, descend. The psalmist is telling us that this, this unity starts high and then descends. Its origin is high up and it falls down. He's saying that, that true unity is not in our human attempts to create unity, but ultimately it's from God. Uh, Moody says that the unity is not something we achieve, it's something that comes down to us. It descends from God to us. It's like oil running down, it's like dew falling down. Uh, turn over to Ephesians chapter 2 real quick. And um, if there's anyone who talks about this oneness, this unity, um, it's, it's Paul in, in, in Ephesians 2. And Paul, he's explaining in, in Ephesians 2 that, that this oneness, this unity that we should be experiencing, it's not manufactured by us, but rather it's given to us by God in this way. And, and all throughout verses 11 to 22, he's talking about this, this God-given oneness. So um, Ephesians 2 starting in verse 12, says, says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. How have you been brought near? By the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, Listen to this, who has made us both one 
and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to you who who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into this holy temple. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. See this, this oneness. We're being made into one. And flick back to, to Galatians chapter 3. It should be a page over. He's talking again uh, in, in verse 27. He says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ and have put on Christ, he talks about our identity, our, 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 uh, who we are with, uh, uh, when we come to Christ. He says, um, for, you, for as many of you who are baptized into Christ and have put on Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free. There's neither male or female, but you are all one in Christ Jesus. You are one in him, he says. So if you are struggling with unity, you don't need to figure out how to manufacture more of it. That's uniformity, remember? Rather, you need to remember that it's something that you've already been brought into. Unity is not something we achieve. It's something we've been given. And, and, and Paul isn't just making this up. He's not just being poetic with his language in Ephesians, Galatians. And the point he's making is actually reflecting Jesus' prayer in John 17. So turn to John 17. You have, uh, it's called Jesus' High Priestly Prayer. Um, do you know, did you know that Jesus prays for you? That, that um, he's, he prayed for you and, and me? And one of those prayers is recorded in the Bible in John 17. I think it's amazing. So in John 17, Jesus prays for his disciples, present and future, which if you're Christian, that's you. He's praying for you and me, and he prays for our unity. And in verse 11 of John 17, he says, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. I don't want you to miss how, how incredible that is, that we would be one, even as he and the Father are one. He's saying that this profound unity that, that should be the norm for us is, is actually a reflection of the eternal unity that has always existed between the Father and the Son. It reflects the glory that the Father and the Son had with each other before the world existed. That's deep unity. Verse 22 says, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one. Our unity is a unity that, that has been given to us, that descends to us. Unity isn't something that we achieve. It's something that Christ achieved for us through his death on the cross, and he's given it to us. That's the origin of this unity. It's so important to understand that. And look at these two poetic images in verses 2 and 3. He helps paint this picture of this God-given unity that exists between brothers and sisters in Christ. It says, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It's like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, turning, uh, running down on the collar of his robes. Um, the, the, that doesn't sound very pleasant to me, getting drenched in oil. Um, but this, this picture of being drenched in oil is from Exodus 29, where God gives Israel instructions on how they were to um, ordain or, or consecrate priests, and, and which Aaron was the first one, which is why he's talking about the beard of Aaron here. 
So priests were the, these holy ones that were uh, to, to kind of um, uh, bring God to the people and the people to God. So after uh, sacrifices were prepared, um, Aaron was to be dressed in his priestly garments. So he had this robe, this ephod, this breastplate. And, and the instruction was given in Exodus 29.7. says, and you shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. And all throughout Scripture, oil is a sign of God's presence. It's a symbol for the Holy Spirit. And Eugene Peterson writes, oil glistens. It picks up the warmth of the sunlight, softens the skin, perfumes the person. So it says a precious oil, this, this picture of this oil that's been fragranced with, um, with very spices. And when, when someone would, would be welcomed into to the home at the time, you would, you would anoint them with oil, and it'd be this warming, perfuming oil. There's this quality of warmth and ease in God's community, which, which contrasts with the, this kind of icy coldness and, and hard surfaces of people who jostle each other in mobs and crowds. It's, it's this welcoming, anointing, perfuming oil. It's warm. Uh, but more importantly, the oil is an anointing oil. Which was it's it's marking the person as a priest, uh, the person is is consecrated. Uh, they're set apart. They're dedicated. Uh, they're made holy. Anything the oil was sprinkled on was was made holy before the Lord. And the psalmist in one thirty three is saying that this is what this good and pleasant unity is like between the brothers and sisters. So this, this dwelling together in unity means seeing the oil over the head, down the face, through the beard, and onto the shoulder of the other. And when I see that, I know that my brother or my sister is my priest. Peterson says, when I see the other as God's anointed, our relationships are profoundly affected. And do you see how this ties in with what Peter, how he describes the church as this royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's people? Do you see your brothers and sisters in this way? I challenge you to use this priestly image the next time you encounter a brother and sister that's, that's hard to have unity with or hard to love. Remind yourself of their priestly status in God's kingdom the anointing oil running down, that each person is, is in God's family is unique, that they're, they're specially loved, and each person is particularly led by the Holy Spirit. I promise you it will change the way you interact with people. Uh, the second image, uh, uh, the community is like the, the, the Jew of Hermon falling on the mountains of Zion. So Mount Hermon is, is the highest mountain in that part of the world. It's just north of Israel. It rises to over 9,000 feet. Contrastingly, uh, the, the mountains in Zion are, are more like large hills than, than tall mountains. Um, uh, they're very dry, very parched land. But Hermon, because of, because of its elevation, is very wet. Uh, it, it captures a great deal of, of precipitation. Um, have, you ever, have you ever slept overnight in the mountains? Um, if you have, you know that when you wake up in the morning, you're drenched, you're wet, everything's wet. Um, uh, this early morning dew, uh, while it's something that might wet your tent and your boots and your sleeping bag, there's also this feeling of renewal, this, this morning freshness, this, this, this nurturing dryness. There's expectancy, there's, there, there's anticipation that comes with the early, heavy morning dew. And a community of faith it flourishes when we view each other with this expectancy, when our love for each other is, is refreshing and enlivening in this way. And, and on one hand, for the, for the Jew of Hermon to fall on Mount Zion, which is over 100 miles away, would be incredible and miraculous. Again, only something that God can do. Um, it makes me think of that uh, Psalm 127 where uh, the, the waters rush into the, to the desert and bring this uh, restoration, this, this, this growth. 
but it's something that only God can do again. And it's describing the goodness and the pleasantness of how we dwell together in unity. Spurgeon says this unity, it's like this dew, mysteriously blessed, full of life and growth for all plants of grace. What's that? Your plant of grace. It brings with it so much benediction, so much blessing, that it has no, it's no common dew, but is that of Hermon, which is specially abundant and far-reaching. This oil and dew, two beautiful metaphors for, for our unity. Oil flowing on Aaron's beard communicates warm, priestly relationships. The dew descending down Hermon's slopes communicates fresh, expectant newness. Two things that, that make life together delightful, that makes our unity good and pleasant. So you have the pleasure of unity, seek it because it's pleasurable. The origin of unity, it's not something that we achieve, it's something that Christ achieves and gives to us. It descends to us. And lastly, we have the blessing of unity. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It's like the precious oil running down. It's like the dew falling down. For there, the Lord has commanded his blessing, life forevermore. This, this good and pleasant, delightful unity, this life together, it's in that situation, in that place, is where God commands the blessing, life forevermore. Uh, Peterson, he delightfully points out that Psalm 133 is throwing out this hint of heaven. So remember that the people of Israel, they wouldn't have had such a clear understanding of, of heaven, of what eternity will be like, uh, because they, simply because they didn't have the New Testament like we do. But, but David is doing his best here, and he's throwing out this, this hint of heaven, and Peterson says, where, where relationships are warm and expectancies are fresh, we're already beginning to enjoy the life together that will be completed in our life everlasting. This unity that is good and pleasant, it's a hint of what heaven will be like. Some scholars say, uh, Psalm 133, it's hinting to what is expanded in this grand vision of unity and life together forevermore in Revelations 4 and 5. And we don't have time to, to read all of those two chapters, but um, turn over to Revelations 4, um, and I, w- I want us to see what he's hinting at in this amazing, beautiful, exciting part of Scripture. Revelations 4 and 5 are, is, is amazing. In Revelations 4, John gets to peek in on the throne of God, the, the throne of heaven, and, th- and this is God sitting on his throne. And, and John sees these, these 24 elders that are gathered around the throne, which law scholars will say is, is in itself this, this sign, this symbol of, of, of unity. Um, 24, so you have the, the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles in the New Testament. This this grand unity of God's people who are worshiping God in all his glory. And in verse 8 of chapter 4, they're singing and they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Verse 11, worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. They're standing before the God who created the universe. And chapter 5 is this beautiful picture of the scroll and the lamb where, where God on his throne in his hand, he, he has, he's holding a scroll. And, and we don't have time to, uh, to go too deep here, but, but the scroll contains God's purposes for history. Uh, but no one is worthy to open that scroll because of the seven seals on it. And, and, and when John sees that no one's worthy to open that scroll, he begins to weep loudly. But then quite dramatically, the lamb is introduced. And in verse 5, one of the elders says to John, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll. 
and John looks and he sees the lamb standing there. He sees him as though he were slain, but he's not slain anymore. And the lamb, the only one who's worthy, he takes the scroll. And you have the four living creatures and the elders, they fell down before the lamb and they sang this new song in verse 9. It says, and they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God. Remember back to Ephesians 2. By your blood, you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. They're talking about you here if you're in Christ. And you have made them into a kingdom and priests to God. You've made them into to whole, this holy nation, into a royal priesthood. 1 Peter 2.9. And they shall reign on earth. Do you see how, 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 how the Lamb is finally, he's restoring that mandate that we were given back in Genesis 1. So humans were originally created to be a priesthood. We are originally created to, to reign on earth on his behalf. And be, because of the curse of sin, all of that was, was undone and jumbled up. And the whole story, the whole Bible is a story about, about God restoring his people. And it culminates with the Lamb being slain. And by his blood, ransoming his people and making them this royal priesthood, restoring them to that original purpose, to reign on earth. Isn't that amazing? We get, we get from the beginning to the end, and this is, this is what's it's being said. You're restored to that original purpose. And look at verse 8, this amazing picture of unity that Psalm 133 is hinting towards. It says, Then I looked, and I heard around the throne... And the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Verse 13, and I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them. This is a picture of unity. And they're all saying, to him who sits on the throne, to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. This beautiful picture of unity in the end, restored to the original purpose, without the curse of sin, worshiping him who has accomplished all of this for us. This is what David's hinting towards here. Anyone excited for that? I can't wait. But, but Psalm 133 is telling us that we get a taste of that here and now when we dwell in unity. That blessing that we're so excited for is also for the here and now as well as in eternity. It's good and it's pleasant just like it will be in heaven. We get a taste of it. Let's stand and pray. Jesus, as usual, this is all about you. Our story This story of, of, of wandering, of being uh, strangers and aliens, of being without you, without hope in the world. But then you, Jesus, come and you make a way for us, all because of this, this love that the Father has for us. And it's by your blood, it's by what you've achieved on the cross that you bring us near, you make us into a family. You make us into brothers and sisters. You give us this unity. That's a unity that reflects the unity that you and the Father have had for all eternity. Wow. 
Lord, help us to see the beauty of that unity. Help us to see the importance of that unity. Help us to strive toward that unity in a way that, that we depend on you, Lord. Love how all of these psalms of ascent start to overlap. Unless the Lord builds the house, we're laboring in vain. Lord, help us to see the unity that you've, you've given us, that's descended on us. We pray these things in your name. Amen. We're going to end just with this, this celebration of unity. Um, there's this irony of, of, of King David being the one writing this song, talking about this blessing of unity, how it's good and pleasant, how it, it reflects this, this, it's a hint of heaven, life forevermore. It's ironic because if you keep reading the story, David is actually going to bring disunity to the kingdom. This, he, this disunity is going to fall onto the kingdom from King David. Um, but um, I've been reading through the Gospel of John, and, and there's this, this thing that Jesus says that only caught my eye, I think because I've been having this ascending, descending in my head. Um, and Jesus says in, in John chapter 3, um, verse 13, he says, No one has ascended into heaven. No one's ascended to that life forevermore except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. He's talking about himself. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. He's talking about the cross here. That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus is that better and perfect David. David couldn't bring that unity forever. Jesus is the one that comes. He descends from heaven. He brings that eternal unity that he and the Father has always. And what he's accomplished on the cross, he gives it to us. And we get to experience that and, 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 and it's good. And, and that's what we celebrate. We celebrate him being lifted up on the cross, his body being broken, his blood being shed. This is the act of him um, bringing us together as one, and not two, as one, making peace, killing the hostility, reconciling us. Um, so as we sing, as we worship, as we celebrate what he's done for us, um, come, uh, break a piece of the bread off, dip it in the wine, feed it to each other, enjoy the unity uh, that's good and pleasant that we've been given.